National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with the National Council of Catholic Men, presents The Holy Agony. Episode 5, Defend Us in Battle, for the Feast of St. Michael the Archangel. sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him.
Gradually growing in this country is a pity that is shown not to the mugged, but to the mother. Not to the family of the murderer, but to the murderer. Not to the woman who was raped, but to the rapist. Not to the poor girl who's given a shot of dope. To the rich boy who happens to come from a fine family. There are some judges, some in some of our courts. There are some social workers, not all. There are sob sisters. There are the social slobberers. Who insist on compassion being shown to the muggers, to the dope fiends, to the throat slashers, to the beatniks, to the prostitutes, to the homosexuals, to the punks. So that today the decent man is practically off the reservation. This is the false compassion. How did it start? You believe in Jesus? Yes, sir, dear. Well, you're going to meet him. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
Michael appeared to the bishop and told him that God had listened to the petitions of the people and had noted the penitential acts. St. Michael then added that in the fourth hour of the next day, the people should courageously meet the enemy and will gain victory. The next morning the attack began. Mount Gargano began to shake violently. The entire summit was enveloped in dark clouds from which came forth flashes of lightning that acted as fiery arrows which flew towards the enemy army causing it to retreat. With joy and prayers and thanksgiving for the gift of victory, the people of that area climbed to the summit of Mount Gargano and actually entered into the mouth of the cave and went down that stairway. To their surprise, they found the cavern to be perfectly formed for a church which could hold some 500 people. You see, this cave had at one time been a place of refuge for early Catholics attending Holy Mass during the times of the Roman persecutions. Special waters were found in the cave as well that were most refreshing and also provided healing powers. To this day, many pilgrims go in procession to the holy site of Mount Gargano and receive countless blessings, indulgences, and even miraculous healings, all through the intercession of St. Michael the Archangel, who still holds this place under his special protection. in the devil years before I was able to believe in God. Ever since I did, it's been war every day. I wake up at 4.30 a.m. I slam down a Walmart K-cup. I mumble a rosary while driving 40 minutes in the dark. I spend my first hour or so alone. Cook for about 150 people. Maybe I find someone overdosed on the toilet and have to give them Narcan. Maybe I have to have the police come remove a schizophrenic over a mask mandate. I probably have to keep a straight face while my coworkers talk about COVID like it's real. I spend the last hour alone cleaning up and mopping the floor. I drive home another 40 minutes. I get home and try to act like I'm not too tired for my kids. We sit down for dinner, we say grace. I watch spaghetti westerns drunk until I fall asleep. I wake up and I do it again. So yeah, I think I'm at the point where I could tell when I'm under demonic attack. Demonic attack. Demonic attack. Demonic attack. Temptation doesn't really get to me anymore. 
And I know there are other levels or other kinds of demonic attack, but the one that really gets to me is uh, what I think exorcists would call demonic obsession, which is when uh, you get kind of obsessed with sick or, or bad thoughts or images and you have a hard time getting them out of your head. I know when I was much younger and way back before I ever came back to the faith or the church or anything, uh, I would call it whatever. I'd say I'm freaking out or some people would say it's anxiety or some people would say it's uh, depression or, but I would just get just assaulted with these horrible, terrible thoughts. You know, just last week, I know last, uh, what was it, last Tuesday and Wednesday, it was just in the mornings. I was just getting beat over the head with thoughts telling me, you know, just these sick demonic thoughts. Oh, you ain't shit. You're not the man you're supposed to be. You're not the man you could have been. You're not the man you should have been. Uh, you know, you're a failure. You're a loser. All that shit is beating me over the head, going over situations where I've, I've, I've fucked up, made the wrong decision, where I've, uh, have, uh, really hurt me and the people around me and telling myself that I'm just in a, I'm in a horrible place and I deserve it, which, uh, of course, is ridiculous for rational reasons and, and other reasons, but, uh, I'll get into why it's ridiculous in a moment, but, uh, yeah, both times, it was, it was Tuesday and Wednesday, I was under so much attack, and, uh, I was able to recognize it right away, and I, I'll know, kind of like I used to know way back when, I'm like, no, you're just freaking out, uh, well, it's knowing you're freaking out, and then there's being able to, to deal with it, and handle it, and get past it, and, uh, whereas back when I was living a more secular life, and totally, God wasn't a part of the picture at all, that stuff would have hit me for days, if not weeks on end, whereas now, you know, it starts hitting me by breakfast, by lunchtime, I'm laughing about the whole thing, uh, and, I have to say that it's been my faith and prayer life that has helped me really get through that. Uh, you know, temptation is nothing. Temptation doesn't even affect me at all anymore. I'm not really, I like to say that, but I'm not tempted to do things I know I shouldn't do anymore. It's more stuff like this that has uh, bad effects on me and the people around me, where if I follow those thoughts down the line, I know that they're going to affect how I act with my wife, with my parents, with my siblings. Uh, God forbid, with my kid, when that kid gets here. And it's been prayer, short, uh, the, the prayer book calls them ejaculatory prayers. I don't like to, <laughs> I don't like to use that phrase, but, uh, you know, short things like the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And just repeating that over and over and over again, things like that, or, or doing the, uh, the sign of the cross prayer, prayer you know, you know, and doing things like that over and over again that really center me and, and you know slow my mind down a bit where then I can get to the rational level where my, where my spirit is kind of calmed down and I get a little more control over it and then I can think about all that crap I was saying earlier on a more rational level like no you're doing you're doing fine who cares what you could have done or where you could have been uh, look you've got a wife who loves you, treats you like a king. You've got your first baby on the way. What a blessing. You've got uh, an incredible, loving, and supporting family. You've got a job that, that pays you more than well enough and is teaching you new things every day. I'm able to grab control of my soul thanks to these prayers.
Immaculate Virgin Mary, angels, archangels, and saints of heaven, descend upon me. Please purify me, Lord. Mold me. Fill me with yourself. Banish from me all the forces of evil. Destroy them. Vanquish them. So that I can be healthy and do good deeds. Banish from me all spells, witchcraft, black magic, malefic ties, maledictions, and the evil eye. Diabolic infestations, oppressions, possessions, all that is evil and sinful. Jealousy, perfidy, envy, physical, psychological, moral, spiritual, diabolical ailments. Burn all of these evils in hell. That that may never again touch me or any other creature in this entire world. I command and bid all the powers that molest me, by the power of God Almighty, in the name of Jesus Christ our Savior, through the intercession of the Immaculate Virgin Mary, to leave me forever, and to be consigned into everlasting hell, where they will be bound by St. Michael, St. Raphael, and guardian angels, and where they will be crushed under the heel of the Immaculate Virgin Mary. Amen. Prayer for inner healing. Lord Jesus, you came to heal our wounded and troubled hearts. I beg you to heal the torments that cause anxiety in my heart. I beg you to come into my life and heal me of the psychological harms that struck me in my early years and from the injuries that they caused throughout my life. Lord Jesus, you know my burdens. I lay them all on your good shepherd's heart. I beseech you, by the merits of the great open wound in your heart, to heal the small wounds that are in mine. Heal the pain of my memories, so that nothing that has happened to me will cause me to remain in pain and anguish, filled with anxiety. Heal, O oh Lord, all those wounds that have been the cause of the evil that is rooted in my life. I want to forgive all those who have offended me. Look to those inner sores that make me unable to forgive. You who came to forgive the afflicted of heart, please heal my own heart. Heal, my Lord Jesus, those intimate wounds that cause me physical illness. I offer you my heart. Accept it, Lord. Purify it and give me the sentiments of your divine heart. Help me to be meek and humble. Heal me, O Lord, from the pain caused by the death of my loved ones, which is oppressing me. Grant me to regain peace and joy in the knowledge that you are the resurrection and the life. Make me an authentic witness to your resurrection, your victory over sin and death, your living presence among us. Amen. heaven is won by violence, and only the violent shall conquer it. Just as we begin to drop something in the church, the world begins to pick it up. As we drop celibacy, some of the Protestant religions are today asking for celibate men to go on the missions. As we drop our beads, hippies put them up and hang them around their necks. As the nun drops the long habits, the girls put on maxi coats. As we drop mysticism, the young people go in for pharmaceuticals and drugs. 
Everything that we're dropping, they are picking up, and we drop violence. Discipline. Commitment to the cross. And the world picks it up. And that's why it's unsafe in the streets. That's why there's no stopping the violence of this country. We just have to buy more locks, hire more police guards, build more hospitals for the addicts. Why? Because there's no moral reason on the inside why they should stop. Dostoevsky said there were two ages to man. The ascent of man to the death of God, and from the death of God to the annihilation of man. God has denied everything is allowable. So when we drop, drop discipline, mortification in our own lives, the world begins to pick it up. And this is the price we're paying for dropping it. Our blessed Lord said, I have come to bring the sword, not peace. We're always talking about peace, peace, peace. Yes, because of that war, but we're not making war in ourselves. And there's not going to be any peace in the world until we make war. Our Lord said, I came not to bring peace, but the sword. He never used the word peace until after Easter. That's one of the reasons I always find it hard to join in, in a prayer for peace. It's just simply a, a kind of a prayer which we forget. That's all we have to do is say, Dear Lord, listen to us. We don't want to be troubled. We got some boys being killed. But we'll just go on the way we are. That's not peace. Lord brought a sword. It's not the sword that thrust outward against the enemy. The sword that thrusts against ourselves. Cutting out the seven tall bears of the soul. Pride and covetousness, lust and anger, envy, gluttony and sloth. And we've given up the sword. Someone else has taken it up. And we have to restore it. Then we'll get peace. And peace is never corporate, it's never social, until it's first individual. Social peace, world peace, is the extension of individual peace in our hearts. When we're right with God, then we'll be right with our fellow man. When we're not right with God, then we'll be wrong with everyone else. My friend Father Veet wrote this reflection from Michaelmas, but he had bronchitis, so he asked me to read it for him. Father Veet was born in communist Czechoslovakia. He played cello in the National Opera and was the concertmaster of the symphony in Prague. He defected in 1985 and lived in a refugee camp for over a year before making his way to North America and becoming a Franciscan friar. The biblical account tells us that St. Michael, with his army, defeated Satan and his angels. Besides the battle in heaven, according to the book of Revelation, St. Michael bound Satan into an abyss. According to Judaic lore, it was Michael who prevented Abraham from sacrificing his son Isaac. Similar legend has it that it was St. Michael who appeared to Moses in the burning bush, freed Peter from prison, and saved Daniel from the den of lions. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, Michael is the Prince of Light, battling against the sons of darkness. St. Joan of Arc named him as one of the angels who encouraged her. The titles of St. Michael express his involvement in human affairs as well as his description. To name a few, the Prince of Gold, Leader of the Archangels, Ruler of the East, Captain of the Heavenly Host, Guardian of the Catholic Church, also Guardian of Israel, Divine Protector, Prince of Light, Guardian of Peace, Angel of Sunday, Master of Balance, etc. He is represented by the colors gold, yellow, and rose red. A variation of his name is Mikael. 
We come to truly appreciate the power of St. Michael in relationship to his opposition. He fought Satan, also known as Lucifer. This name comes from the Hebrew Hillel, meaning morning star. The word Lucifer comes from the Latin Vulgate version. In Latin, Lucifer means light bearer. Some sources likened the battle between Lucifer and St. Michael to a battle between David and Goliath. David, physically smaller and disadvantaged, won a battle against Goliath, an enormously large and powerful man. The reason for David's victory is that David fought in the name of the Lord. It was the power of God that inspired him, gave him courage, and guided him during his battle. Similarly, Lucifer, an angel with greater powers than Michael, lost to St. Michael because St. Michael fought in the name of the Lord. Both battles illustrate and are essential to understand the spiritual battle of every Christian with demonic powers. We being much weaker creatures face demons who existed before the universe came to be. They do not sleep, do not eat, and know all philosophies, all theologies, all about us humans. They are superior to us in everything. Yet, when we face them in the name of the Lord, we win the battle. The wickedness of demonic forces or the goodness of divine forces become incarnate only by the consent of a human being. We are the battlefield. We can only win a battle by accepting the divine inspiration. Thus, as did David and St. Michael, we will win when we wage the battle in the name of the Lord. Let me quote Evdokimov, who put this principle in a perfect way. The fathers of the church saw in the account of the temptation in the desert the ultimate words of the gospel message. Indeed, against the archetype of man in divine wisdom, the tempter set us his counterplan, the man of demonic wisdom. St. Paul even mentions a demonic Pentecost. To refresh our memory, St. Paul warns them about false apostles. For if someone comes and preaches another Christ than the one we have preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received. On the natural level, the divine and demonic inspiration only takes place when a human being freely cooperates with such inspiration. If that inspiration is ignored, nothing will happen. To illustrate this principle, what is the sin of omission? God sends his divine intervention or inspiration in order to perform some good in this world. If a human being ignores that inspiration, the divine inspiration is wasted. It turns into nothing. Now consider how many times we want God to come and intervene in our broken world, and then ponder how many divine inspirations went unanswered by us Christians, including clergy, politicians, people in power, etc. God will not fix this world without us. On the other hand, how many people listened and acted on demonic inspirations? Look at all wars, revolutions, movements, ideologies, etc. It is up to us Christians to pray and ask God for his inspiration to guide us in reformation of ourselves and ultimately of this world. To become effective agents of divine inspiration, we need to become soldiers of Christ. The soldier of Christ is an ascetic, a man of prayer, filled with divine wisdom and love.
Listen up, soldier. You're in a war, okay? It happens every day when you wake up and continues every night while you're sleeping. It's a war for your soul, and your enemy hates you. I mean, he really, really hates you. He hates you so much, he pretends to be your best buddy so that at the exact right moment, he can stick the knife straight up your ass and fuck you good and deep. And after that, what does he do? He chucks your body down a hole, laughs about it, and brags to his real friends, okay? That's who your enemy is. We all have hard times, and maybe some of us have harder times than others. But I'm here to tell you that the more shit you have to go through, the more God loves you. Because it's more than that. The more shit that you have to go through, the more God trusts you. Because he knows you can take it. He knows you're gonna get stronger the more he throws at you. He's putting you through the paces because he thinks that you can take your licks and stand them like a man. And I get it. You're sitting here thinking, oh, imagine how much further I could have got in life if it weren't for all the shit to go through. But you're thinking about it all wrong. You are who you are because of all the shit you had to go through. And without any and all of that, you would be a totally different person. And you know who you'd be? You'd probably be a weak little bitch who's way less cool than he is right now. So you need to accept it, embrace it, mourn for your loss, but accept it. Now let's talk about the goat. This is the God who became man that you didn't have to spend the hereafter in eternal torment. You think you went through some shit? Think about the most stressed you've ever been in your life. Laying awake all night, worrying about bills or God only knows what. Now think about what our Lord went through during the agony in the garden, knowing that he had to die in one of the most painful and humiliating ways possible because you can't stop yourself from pulling your dick to hentai. This is a phrase we throw around a lot lately, but truly, we didn't deserve it. And that's who your number one ally against the enemy is. The man who defined, do no harm, but take no shit. He kicked death right in the dick. He was the greatest man who ever lived, and he is 100% in your corner. Sometimes that means a little tough love, but mostly it means he's willing to go to bat for you to keep your enemy from devouring your soul entirely. And he's not the only one in your corner. Say it with me. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Some of you don't know that right now the saints are praying for you, and it shows. So God made you a little stuff. That's your cross to bear. And it's pretty light compared to an actual cross. But maybe, just maybe, God gave you your imperfections and failures because he wanted you to figure out how to use them for his purpose. Maybe you should stop punching yourself in the nuts over it and figure out how you can use whatever's wrong with you or whatever you think is wrong with you for God's greater glory. 
You're living during one of the most exciting periods in human history. And you choose to blackpill like a teenage girl getting bullied on Snapchat. Yeah, it's really f***ing hard right now. But it's been bad before. And you know what? It's going to be bad again. Maybe even worse. But we're going to get through the sea of darkness to the little island of light that makes the whole thing worth it. And only after swimming through the void can we truly appreciate these islands of life. If God didn't think you could handle it, he would have stuck you somewhere else. And that's why your enemy hates you so much. Because you're strong enough to take it. I've been feeling this huge gratitude lately. We've been so lucky. All these plans we've been working on finally coming together to give us this chance at our new life beyond the big city. For as long as I can remember, maybe it was my childhood and the way my life was growing up that set the pattern, but it's just the way I am. Good fortune, these feelings always seem to lead to a sense of dread. Right before she fell asleep last night, I whispered to my wife, wondering when we'll have to pay all this back. Early this morning, my best friend called me. It sounded like he hadn't slept. Really knew. Everything we feared. Stage 4 ovarian cancer with the lungs involved. I've called in all the praying people I know. They're saying her name all over the country and the world. We know it's important to pray, and we know God hears our prayer, but we can't know His plan. So what am I supposed to do? Am I going to trust the science? I can't think of a time in my life when science and medicine seem more like tools of evil men. But I want her to fight. Of course I want her to fight. I want them to know we aren't giving up hope. Today, it's just anger. It's selfish, and I know it. Not because the doctors failed to catch something sitting right in front of their nose, but because of everything. Everything that's heaving and collapsing. Every single lie we're forced to hear over and over. The absolute trash we're being encouraged to repeat. Every authority grasping and scratching at the last strands of their control. My mind is a boomerang. It's not a good time with everything they're going through. To talk about my opinions or how I think about hope. I don't want to make it about me and my stupid end of history routine. But in my heart, I know there's something about hope than just medical miracles. And I want our friends to have the best chance at more time together and with us. I believe she can be one of the few to beat it back. I know she can win. I've been through this a few times now. And except for one good friend, after a diagnosis like this, I've never seen the medicine do anything but torture the people I love. 
maybe the science gets better over time. Maybe the medicine improves. Maybe I'm just seeing everything through my resentment. Or maybe I'm seeing it for what it is. Doctors so confident about things they don't know. Treating patients according to their politics. Going for likes online, becoming influencers. Getting angry when you question their decisions. Making decisions that hurt rather than help out of spite. When I say I have hope, it means I have faith. It means something outside the reach of medicine. I accept the role of medicine, and I accept it can help us heal. But hope, that's not about the chemo. The chemo is just the chemo. The doctor, that's just a person with a job. They do the best they can. They can follow their rules, make their recommendations. They mostly guess at everything. You'll hear people say how they don't put their faith in man, but in God. I can believe a doctor is part of God's plan. I'm positive that medicine is part of his plan. But when medicine fails, it's a failure of man. And it shouldn't take us by surprise or make us confused or hopeless. When a doctor fails, I don't defend or try and insulate him from criticism. He's failed at his job. He will often fail. He's imperfect. I'm angry because I can't get it out of my head no matter how much I know it won't help. I can't stop wondering if the COVID shots are part of this. She'd been to her doctor recently with no sign of anything wrong. Of course I don't have evidence, but these drugs seem like bad news. We know they're going to hurt people in unexpected ways. And of course I know cancers can develop quick and go undetected. But everything I'm seeing now leads me to wonder if they could have stayed away. If they could have just avoided the influence. I'm angry because while I know it's insane to draw all these lines, I can't get it out of my head. And I don't see how any normal person wouldn't be wondering the same thing. I'm angry about hope and how they teach us to hope and how they use hope to confuse us and divide us. I want to tell my friend there's another way and that the way they taught us to hope isn't real. I want to embrace him, tell him I've been there, swimming in all these numbers and these names of chemicals and the time left. I want to do whatever I can to help him feel the power beyond their influence. I mean, there's a good chance he knows all of this already. And maybe what I really want to do is just let him know he's not alone. I'm angry because they want us to forget all that. What if... I know I'm off the path saying what if. I know I'm missing the message. When I look back... But just because I know God's in control doesn't mean I don't ask what if doesn't mean I resign and let it wash over me. I wonder what if. I wonder what if we didn't let him get away with it. I've prayed a lot to God during this time. And you know what? God did answer our prayers. He made the smartest men and women, the scientists, the doctors, the researchers. He made them come up with a vaccine. That is from God to us. And we must say thank you, God. Thank you. And I wear my vaccinated necklace all the time to say I'm vaccinated. All of you.
Yes, I know you're vaccinated. You're the smart ones. But you know there's people out there who aren't listening to God and what God wants. You know this. You know who they are. I need you to be my apostles. I need you to go out and talk about it and say, we owe this to each other. We love each other. Jesus taught us to love one another. And how do you show that love? But to care about each other enough to say, please get vaccinated because I love you. I want you to live. I want our kids to be safe when they're in schools. I want you to be safe when you go to a doctor's office or to a hospital and are treated by somebody. You don't want to get the virus from them. You're already sick or you wouldn't be there. We have to solve this, my friends. I need every one of you. I need you to let them know that this is how we can get, fight, fight this pandemic, come back to normal, and then start talking about the real issues that we have to. Fighting systemic racial injustice.
To St. Michael in Time of Peace by G.K. Chesterton Michael, Michael, Michael of the morning, Michael of the army of the Lord, stiffen thou the hand upon the still sword, Michael, folded and shut upon the sheathed sword, Michael, under the fullness of the white robes falling, gird us with the secret of the sword. When the world cracked because of a sneer in heaven, leaving out for all time a scar upon the sky, thou didst rise up against the horror in the highest, dragging down the highest that looked down on the most high, rending from the seventh heaven the hell of exaltation, down the seven heavens till the dark seas burn, thou that in thunder threwest down the dragon, knowest in what silence the serpent can return. Down through the universe, the vast night falling, Michael, Michael, Michael of the morning. Far down the universe, the deep calms calling, Michael, Michael, Michael of the sword. Bid us not forget in the baths of all forgetfulness, in the sigh long drawn from the frenzy and the fretfulness, in the huge, holy, sempiternal silence, in the beginning was the word. When from the deeps of dying God astounded angels and devils who do all but die, seeing him fallen where thou couldst not follow, seeing him mounted where thou couldst not fly, hand on the hilt thou hast halted all thy legions, waiting the tetelestai and the acclaim, swords that salute him, dead and everlasting, God beyond God and greater than his name. Round us and over us the cold thoughts creeping, Michael, Michael, Michael of the battle cry. Round us and under us the thronged world sleeping. Michael, Michael, Michael of the charge. Guard us the word, the trysting and the trusting, edge upon the honor and the blade unrusting, fine as the hair and tauter than the harp string, ready as when it rang upon the targe. He that giveth peace unto us, not as the world giveth, he that giveth law unto us, not as the scribes. Shall he be softened for the softening of the cities, patient in usury, delicate in bribes? They that come to quiet us, saying the sword is broken, break man with famine, fetter them with gold, sell them as sheep, and he shall know the selling, for he was more than murdered, he was sold. Michael, Michael, Michael of the mustering, Michael of the marching on the mountains of the Lord, marshal the world and purge of rot and riot, rule through the world till all the world be quiet, only establish when the world is broken, what is unbroken is the word. I was at a work-related fundraiser and I got cornered by this NPR host and his wife who was a community organizer. They were bragging about their transgender six-year-old like it was a hip new restaurant and they were the first ones in their social circle to get to eat there. I made myself physically ill, forcing a smile and nodding while they talked about how it was so bigoted they had to wait a few more years to cut their son's dick off. And how in 50 years everyone would look back on this like we were so uncivilized. 
It was the new civil rights movement, and they were so brave for getting in on the ground floor. The French Revolutionary government began to take increasingly drastic measures to address the problem of national debt. Including confiscating church property, which was either nationalized or sold off for funds. Anti-clerical sentiment continued to rise in the following years, and the National Assembly abolished religious orders, declared religious vows null and void. When government officials visited the Carmelite convent at Compagnie, they were surprised to learn that the nuns didn't want to be liberated from their religious vows, and they refused to leave their convent. The sisters were allowed to stay on as wards of the state. And meanwhile, the community committed to offering themselves daily in prayer as a sacrifice for France and the church. The Carmelites of Compagnie were eventually expelled from the convent on the Feast of the Exaltation of Cross in 1792. Sisters were split up into groups of four to live in separate houses. They adopted secular dress but continued to practice their regular religious life clandestine. As the reign of terror escalated, the sisters were denounced and arrested for living a religious life in violation of the Constitution. The sisters were reunited in prison. They renewed their commitment to offer themselves as a sacrifice for France and the church. The Revolutionary Tribunal convicted them of being religious fanatics and sentenced them to death by guillotine. The usual crowds were gathered in the Place des Nations to watch public executions. The prison guards escorted 16 Carmelite nuns to the scaffolding as they sang old Latin hymns together.
Historical accounts all describe how the crowds were reduced to silence as each sister took her turn at the guillotine. Within ten days, Robespierre himself was guillotined and the reign of terror had ended. Intercession of the Blessed Michael the Archangel. Angel.
His real name was Robert, but everybody just called him Dude Man. He just started hanging around my work one day, and he'd always be in drag with it, and he'd have a different crazy wig every day. Initially, I just assumed he was a gay prostitute. He used to have this this laugh. Well, he sounded like Beavis from Beavis and Butthead, kind of, but even like, like more unhinged. And so he was, he was a frail guy, and he was not a uh, not all there. So he would, you know, he'd always be coming up looking for some help with something. Like he couldn't button his pants, or he lost his belt, or he fell and he didn't remember what happened, and his forehead was busted open, or he hadn't eaten in three days, and he needed a donut at 6 a.m. when I pulled in, so he didn't starve. And he was just kind of helpless, so you would, you know, you tried to help the guy out. And so anyways, he'd always worked when he could, which had been pretty much always until recently, as his health started to decline. And so when he, on the rare occasions that he was sober, he would want to volunteer for me washing pots and pans. And so, I, you know, I got to know the guy, and I realized he wasn't really doing a drag thing. It was more like a glam rock and roll Johnny Thunderous thing that he was doing, and he would, which explained why he, every time he would walk around every day, he'd have a different musical instrument he found at a dumpster or whatever, either like a, sometimes it'd be a hand drum, sometimes like a half-broken guitar, I don't even know where he got this stuff from, but he was always playing music, and so one day, he gets real serious, and he, and he asks me, and he's, you know, serious, but he's still talking in his crazy Beavis voice, and he's like, hey, hey chef, you're, you're Catholic, right, and and he starts pointing, I, you know, I have all these pictures and icons taped up all over my refrigerator and my workspace. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, why? What's up? And he's, he tells me real seriously that he needs me to pray for him. And he asks if I know any priests who do exorcisms, which is not, you know, not something you can really take lightly. <laughs> so I ask him why he's asking me this. And he tells me very seriously that when he was a teenager, he made a deal with the devil play rock and roll and he explains that's what any that he explains that that's why he's so good at guitar and he he legitimately is I've heard him play and he can you know he can shred he, put, he plays like a you know like an 80s Hesher but he's dead serious and he starts crying and explaining that he he sold his soul to play music and now he's close to dying and, it, and he he feels it pulling him and he, he asked me really seriously if I think there's any chance that he can be saved. And I tell him, yeah, it's it's not easy, but it's possible. And I and I say that I'll pray for him. You know, and he just starts muttering to himself, it's too late, it's too late. And anyways, you know, a few months later during lockdown, when they, you know, we weren't allowed to let anybody inside anymore, they found him overdosed in a snowbank. And the devil knew that we were tearing into his kingdom and claiming much of his territory. He knew that he wasn't going to get us to turn back to drinking. He wasn't going to get us, be able to get us to start running around again. And he knew we wasn't going to gamble and play numbers anymore. At 
It was my grandmother talking into one of those big black rotary phones with the cooling cord and the real bell inside. I was sitting at the dining table eating a biscuit with applesauce. And she out and says, you need to leave right now. That man has a demon inside him. I didn't know who she was talking to or who she was speaking of. But I remember immediately thinking of Pisu and books and ashtrays tornadoing around collared men and entire New England families axed to death in the middle of the night. And I remember the macabre little shiver that ran down my nine-year-old spine. I don't remember anything she said after, just that she wiped her eyes after she hung up the phone, went into her sewing room, and that was that. See, growing up in the 80s and 90s, steeped in increasingly outrageous phantasmagoria, and what we now know was a curated, sanitized, satanic panic. Granny's notions of demons and the demonic, those forces that took over to make one rough and mean, felt quaint as a frilly gingham apron. And I didn't think on principalities, or fallen angels, or even Satan himself at all until I came home from college one Christmas break to find a high school friend who'd just sniffed her own baby in the womb. These two, they'd been a couple forever, and they'd gotten careless. And then she decided she didn't love him anymore and had the inconvenience eliminated. She spoke of it in the most clinical terms, as if she'd removed an unsightly mole or a planter's wart. It was the first time I ever adequately conceptualized the callousness of a cold, reprobate heart. Years have passed, and Watcher Kasaja's ritual remains enshrined in this nation, the cornerstone issue of the current ruling powers. One needn't even look close to see the demonic twist of Miss Nine Abortions and Counting's face as she claws like a cornered animal at the outside of the courthouse door. And I just want to tell her, being a cervix haver myself, that it's not just cock and vacuum entering you repeatedly, wild woman, but a dark cosmic entity, anti-human, devastating. One night on an otherwise empty two-lane, the father of my friend's aborted baby crashed head-on into a transfer truck. The truck driver, who survived, thank God, said the car never swerved back into the correct lane. No one ever tapped the brakes. Score two for the watchers. My friend went on to have other babies. Proof God's deliverance and grace is unfathomable. Though I don't know if she put it like that herself. And I wonder about that 19-year-old boy every day. If they hadn't given in to those principalities of fear and dysfunction that gripped the two of them at the time. If he'd had that child to center himself around, to love and be loved, could he have found the will to defy the thing in his head that said, Veer, floor it. Take heart, northern friends. The hour's newly late. The king dies. He dies early. Towns die all the time. It, in so many ways, happens all the time. It's happening while we speak. We hear about the Dust Bowl, or some town made irrelevant by a new highway or diverted train route. We hear about the Rust Belt. In Maine, maybe as a result of some accident geography, the trains never really came here to begin with, not like they did everywhere else. We're a raw material state. Fish, lumber, paper, potatoes. Everything going in one direction only. The trains came in empty, left full, came back empty again. In Maine, Maybe as a result of some accident of history, the towns die differently. They look different, older, more time. Towns built largely in the late 19th century, early 20th century appear feminine to me, hysterical, panicked, all the complications and elaborations. In Maine and throughout New England, the towns can be older, built when things were literally different. Under all the mold and collapse of 18th century towns, there is a sort of royalty. 
And there is a difference between what a queen dies and what a whore does. One of these happens every day. Royalty like that is a finite resource. It gets dug away at, eroded, stripped for parts. The trains come in empty, leave full, come back empty again. The sun set early in our royalty. Our WASP elites spent the 20th century spending down their inheritances until all that was left were the coastal village mansions, maintained ultimately by the last spinster aunt or Lovecraftian mama's boy. In the 90s, I worked in a bar, a mother and daughter pair, the daughter Andrews, the final custodians of a brilliant 1750s cape, came in all the time. The daughter, Penny, would order Dubonnet on ice, and the mother was a ghoul who would creak Happy New Year's to everyone. A true, rotten apple-faced apparition. They were important, and the message couldn't be clear. Time had made them irrelevant. The world had no need to reproduce them. It was time to sell, and sell they did. First to the antique dealers, getting high on the ancient ambiance, the ship models, the widow's walks, scrimshaw. They turned these coastal villages into tombs. The farm sold now to yuppie kids with ag aspirations, boutique kimchi producers, Thai pepper greenhouse, a holding pattern, waiting for the trust funds to kick in. The kids don't go to our schools, don't mix with the locals. I once saw one of these types that had eco-queer tattooed on her knuckles, like Robert Mitchum in Night of the Hunter had love and hate on his, also impotent. Don't get me wrong, I'm glad to see the wasps go. Glad to see them tumble into squalid irrelevance, fall from their thrones unlamented. They were never true royalty, an accident. If you think like I do, you know there is only one true royalty, in the sky, Lord, in the sky. And the truth is passed through a specific hierarchy here on Earth, a truth our waspy elites never had access to. They are like ice in the ditch, thin, bright, and brief. True royalty is like water that goes on forever underground and destroys what it freezes. Although the enemy is all around me now and will continue to be for a long time, barring some disaster that I too am unlikely to survive, it is not a cause for weeping. Royalty is in the sky and it is in the ground. It is in the woods and all around. Man plans, God laughs. The foundations laid in the ground and in our heads by the enemy will be easily crushed by our king. You have to believe that. You have to believe that he always lies in wait for you. I believe in importance. I believe we are in constant communication with the material world. While in the woods, I watch for our Merlin, bringing news of the return of our Arthur, walking backwards, remembering the future. We are a seed-planting generation, and our seeds should be like the chestnuts are, wearing a spiked armor. Make them pay a price, those who would touch you. Take heart, Northern friends. We are making babies, and our babies are better than theirs. Daily we build the church of the good neighbor. So keep it moving, Dan. Don't you listen to him, Dan. He's a devil, not a man, and he spreads the burning sand with water. Dan, can't you see? There's a big green tree where the water's running free and is waiting there for you and me. Come and 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O glorious Prince of the Heavenly Host, Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in the battle and in the fearful warfare that we are waging against the principalities and powers, against the rulers of this world of darkness, against the evil spirits. Come now to the assistance of men, whom Almighty God created immortal, making them in his own image and likeness, and redeeming them at a great price from the tyranny of Satan. Fight this day the battle of the Lord with thy legions of holy angels, even as of old thou didst fight against Lucifer, the leader of the proud spirits and all his rebel angels, who were powerless to stand against thee, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And that apostate angel, transformed into an angel of darkness, who still creeps about the earth to encompass our ruin, was cast headlong into the abyss together with his followers. But behold, the first enemy of mankind, and a murderer from the beginning, has regained his confidence. Changing himself into an angel of light, he goes about with the whole multitude of the wicked spirits to invade the earth and blot out the name of God and of his Christ, to plunder, to slay, and to consign to eternal damnation the souls that have been destined for a crown of everlasting life. This wicked serpent, like an unclean torrent, pours into men of depraved minds and corrupt hearts the poison of his malice, the spirit of lying, impiety, and blasphemy, and the deadly breath of impurity in every form of vice and iniquity. These crafty enemies of mankind have filled to overflowing with gall and wormwood the church, which is the bride of the Lamb, without spot. They have laid profane hands upon her most sacred treasures. Make haste, therefore, O invisible prince, to help the people of God against the inroads of the lost spirits, and grant us the victory. Amen.